Okay, <clears throat> this evening's reading is from Esther chapter 1, verses 1 to 12, and then we move to uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. So this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet, lasting seven days, in the enclosed garden of the king's palace, for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant, in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's demand, sorry, the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Varsha also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehumen, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, Zaytha, and Kakas, to bring before him Queen Lavashti, leaving her royal crown, sorry, wearing her royal crown, I'm sorry, in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Just moving to chapter 2. Excuse me. Okay. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what he had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for a beautiful young virgin, for beautiful young virgins, for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women in, at, into the harem of the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty's treatments be given to them. Then let the young women who young woman who pleases the king to be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jai, son of Shimei, son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among, whose taken, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because he, she had uh, neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king ordered, and, 
or when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favour. Immediately he provided her with, with, her, with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants, selected from the king's palace, and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked and, uh, back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn, before a young woman's turn came to go to King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with the oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashkaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and, 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 and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman, woman Mordecai adopted, the daughter of his uncle, Abihail, to go to the king, and she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested, and Esther won the favour of everyone who saw her. She was taken to the king's, to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Jebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any other of the women, and, he won, and she won his favour and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials to proclaim a holiday throughout the provinces and distribute gifts with royal liberality. Well, hi, everybody. Nice to see you. My name is Paul, one of the pastors here at Sorrow Bible Church. Well done, John. Bit of a killer. Long passage, a lot of foreign names, but I think you did wonderfully well. That's great. Um, we're going to spend a little bit of time now having a think about that passage and what it might mean to us. It sounds very foreign. Let's see what it means for us today. Um, why don't we do, start with some prayer? Let's pray. Jesus said, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that these words are written down for us because they point to Jesus and teach us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. And so, Lord, we do pray you would open our hearts and minds to understand you and obey. And it's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Uh, well, about eight years ago, uh, we moved to the Shire, to a little house in Kirawee. Now, even though we had moved uh, many times, this move caught us by surprise financially. Um, because for this time when we moved, we thought we'd give our friends a break and uh, we'd use professional um, removalists. And let me tell you, they really add up. 
Uh, then we had to, top on, the, on top of all that, we had to pay four weeks rent up front for the bond. And let's just say after this whole moving process, uh, the credit card was smoking just a little bit. Um, at that point in our lives, we were living only on one wage. Um, and quite frankly, we didn't have the money to pay back our credit card. And I'm talking about a decent debt here, um, an amount moving towards a few thousand dollars. Now, right at this time, we got a letter from Centrelink saying that they were going to cancel our family tax benefit. And I thought, fantastic, that's just what we need right at this time as we're needing to repay a debt. Um, but the reason they gave was really weird, really strange. It says we're cancelling um, the payment because you are not currently living in Australia. Now I thought, okay, the Shire's an independent sort of place. Uh, you do have to cross the sea to get here, uh, one of the three bridges to get over here, can't you? But I thought, okay, I'll get on the phone to Centrelink and find out what's going on. And they said, well, look, we have record that at about 12 months ago, uh, you went through customs and went overseas. We didn't have record that you'd come back. And, well, that's true. Uh, we had gone overseas just for a short time for a family event. But we're back within a few days. Well, um, the very helpful Centrelink person uh, reset my account and fixed up whatever glitches uh, that were there. And then as we're parting ways, he said, just in passing, like, oh, by the way, um, there'll probably be some kind of correction um, to your Centrelink payment. Well, the next couple of days, the payment went in. And wouldn't you guess it? The amount that went in covered almost to the dollar the debt that we had. Totally unexpected. A payment from out of the blue, a few thousand dollars covering our debt. What an amazing stroke of luck. Or what a marvellous provision from God. Uh, that's two possible reasons for how we got that money. On the one hand, if reality is nothing more, if reality is nothing more than what we can see and feel and touch, um, well, then it was just a coincidence, just a, a, a good chance that we got an unexpected Centrelink payment that covered the bill. But on the other hand, the Christian believer can say this. They can say that God can even use computer glitches in the government system to provide money in a time of need. Simple chance or sovereign control. The debate can get particularly heated and pointed, especially when God's not visible. Where is God? Does he care? These are sort of questions that the cynic and the believer ask when God's not visible. And as we read through the Bible, we see different moments, don't we? I mean, there are times when God's open hand is displayed and there are times when God works with a hidden hand. There's a time for open miracles and a time for seeing, uh, not seeing, but believing. There are times when God seems close. There are times when God seems far away. There are times of triumph. There are times of tragedy. And so when we come to the book of Esther, we come to a time, one of the worst times for the people of God. Because a hundred years before this book, Jerusalem has been totally conquered and destroyed 
by the Babylonian Empire, and the people are uprooted from there and sent to live in exile for 70 years. But then, as God promises, the next empire comes along, the Persian Empire, and they allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem. But there were some, quite a few, that did not return. And we read about some of them in Esther. And as we're reading about them and this setting, I think we're to appreciate their isolation. For being a Jew in the capital of Persia would not have been easy. They were leftover exiles, marginalised, powerless, invisible under the power and might of this pagan empire. Now, life may not have been all that wonderful back in Jerusalem, which was still actually under the control of the Persian Empire, but at least they had something they could call home. At least they could say, this is our holy land. Um, This is what's left of our holy city. Um, Those bricks over there, that's going to be our holy temple. But the Jews in Susa, well, friends, they were living in a godless wasteland. One of the extraordinary things about this book, Esther, is that God is not named. The name of God does not appear in it. Imagine that. A book of the Bible without the name of God. And I think that's because the book symbolises the the public godlessness of what it was like to be a believer, to someone who believes in the true and living God in the midst of a Persian pagan empire. It felt as if God had been wiped from public discourse. It felt as if God had been wiped from the history of the world. It felt like a godless world. Indeed, it wasn't just difficult being a believer in Persia. It was downright dangerous as well. In some countries today, it's actually illegal to convert to Christianity or to um, any other religion. I remember talking to some missionaries uh, from the Middle East who would minister to many secret believers. And those secret believers would speak of how painful it was, how isolating it was to hide their faith. Their faith in Jesus um, was a risk to their life. And I think if we can begin to appreciate that, then we're on our way to understanding the atmosphere for God's people living in Persia. It was a very difficult time and place to be a Jew. Now, in contrast to all that, we actually read of how human society was actually at its most successful. Um, The book opens um, with uh, that amazing picture of the size of the empire. I've got a map here on screen for you here to look at it. Here's the Persian Empire, an enormous empire that stretches from India in the east right through to to Egypt in the west. Enormous empire, the biggest of its time up until this point of existence. And friends, I've highlighted there in the middle, you can see there Susa in the middle, the the capital where this uh, story is set. And I've also highlighted Jerusalem, you can see where the exiles went back still very much part of the Persian Empire. And friends, you you can't get that big without having some kind of skill in organising people. I would think it's probably been a pretty well-run empire. It obviously had excellent administration and um, a a very powerful civil service. It would have had good communication, effective taxation, 
good archives for state documents, which we'll read about in a little bit later. Um, they would have had incredible pol uh, political policies to try to um, deal with a very large and culturally religious um, diverse empire. Uh, Persia built impressive cities, displayed sophisticated cultural life. They had everything, everything that the world envies in human empires. And of course, there was great wealth. We're told that it took the king 180 days, six months, to display the vast wealth of his kingdom. Now, I've sat through some pretty long parades, but that's crazy. Six months of displaying wealth, that's just outrageous. And then after that, it was time for a banquet. And not just a banquet for a few hours, not just for a day. Let's go for seven days, constant banqueting. And again, it's like our noses are being rubbed into the abundant wealth and decadence, the wonderful furnishings, the custom-made gold goblets, so you could guzzle down endless supply of wine. And can you imagine the people being there? Um, the wives, the, the women of the empire, um, talking to their husbands. Um, why don't we try furnishing our house with some of this um, blue and white linen? That would look really lovely at home. And maybe we could put up a few new marble columns. And gee, um, the old flagstone pavement at the back of our house, that's looking pretty tired. Why don't we spruce it up a bit um, with some precious stones and mother of pearl? How about that? Well, I reckon we can imagine that. Because if we're honest, we love that stuff. We love it. We, like the Persians, can fall into worshipping power, fame, wealth, glamour. If they had fashion magazines in those days, the pages would have been full of pictures of the palace and all the great things in the Persian capital. In Australia these days, today, even now, when, when politicians talk about the state of the nation, what do they end up talking about? The economy. If the economy is strong, that somehow that means we've got a good country. Well, the economy might be a, a good servant, but I'm not sure it's an all that great master. Actually, as we read through that opening chapter, um, the over-the-top display of power and wealth in this opening chapter, I think it's actually a setup. It's a setup for us. That as we stand there too, gazing, mouth agape, at the incredible wealth, at all the shiny stuff being paraded before us, as we read on, we're reminded that not all is as it seems. Not, every, not all that glitters is gold. For at the centre of all this is the Persian ruler, King Xerxes. Here is the great king of kings, the ruler of a vast empire, 127 provinces, um, commander-in-chief of not just one army but a multitude of armies who can splash around untold wealth. But can he control his wife? 
I know if you picked that up as you're, reading, as you're listening to John reading that out earlier. It's quite a change to the vibe of the story. As you're reading through, and suddenly there's this disappointment. It's actually a disturbing picture, if you think about it at all. After seven days of partying, the king is obviously very full of himself and very full of wine and then commands his wife to be paraded like a trophy in front of everyone else. And like one of those um, record scratches on the thing, the story comes to a halt because Queen Vashti refuses to come. And this enrages the king. But what follows highlights the foolishness of Xerxes. He ends up making an international decree that Vashti would not be able to come back into his presence. She would be banished from his presence. And then makes a command that every man, every man should be the ruler over his own household. These two responses are ultimately really a petulant response. A petulant response. It makes a private matter a public issue. It turns a domestic crisis into a state emergency. Throughout the book, Xerxes will be shown again and again to be a man who takes advice, but takes the wrong advice. A man who looks so powerful, but is, who is so easily manipulated by others around him. He's defined by, defied by Queen Vashti and follows the questionable advice of his officials. Which brings us to the second chapter and the introduction of Mordecai, a Jew living in the heart of Susa. And again, we need to appreciate the isolation, the weakness of a Jew living in the capital of a pagan empire. And it adds to the tension of the story. And especially so as we're introduced to Esther, the orphan, raised by Mordecai. Because meanwhile, back in the palace, the king's attendants propose a search be made to find a new queen for Xerxes. And so far we've seen the king flaunt his power and his wealth. We've also seen his stupidity and his weakness. Now we'll see his abuse. For this beauty contest to find a queen is nothing more than ugly exploitation. This is not a Disney story of rags to riches, of a peasant becoming queen. This is about the grossest behaviour. As each night, a different prepared young woman is brought before the king for a night's pleasure. Here is sexual exploitation at its very, very worst. Oh, it's all done uh, beautifully with one year's beauty treatment. No expense spared. But friends, it stinks. And Esther goes through this deeply disturbing process to emerge the winner. So we read from chapter 2, verse 17 here on screen. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women. 
and she won his favour and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And friends, if your children's Bible portrays this as a wonderful moment in Esther's life, it was not. It was sexual and personal degradation. What is more, we're told twice in the story up to this point that Esther keeps secret about her family background and about her nationality. Oh yeah, yeah, at surface level, all seems well. Esther is now queen. But if we scratch below the surface, it's all a bit puzzling. The events are all quite sinful. Should God's people be getting involved in this kind of thing? Should they be secretive about their faith? And overall, where is God in all this? Well, although the name of God is not mentioned, although the people of God are beneath the radar, although God might be hidden, he's still powerfully present. And we get a hint of this as we read on, chapter 2, verse 21, here on the screen. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. So what's this got to do with anything? What is this? Is it a chance event that Mordecai just happens to be sitting at the gate and overhears a murder plot? Or is God orchestrating an event here? Well, I'm not going to spoil the story. You've got to read on. You've got to read on. So how does God work in these worst of times? Well, apparently, in trivial matters, in coincidences, in ordinary circumstances, God uses the smallest detail to achieve his biggest plan. He uses compromised people like Mordecai and Esther to achieve his will. God uses evil and tragedy to achieve his long-term good purposes. And God uses the smallest human actions for purposes beyond our imagining. This is what the invisible rule of God looks like and feels like. Oh yeah, don't, be, don't doubt that God can do the big gesture. He can part the seas when he needs to. But here in Esther, and more particularly perhaps now in our lives, he'll be working behind the scenes. Working behind the scenes. And for those who hear the story of Esther again and again, the purpose of this story is to show how often God works in odd coincidences, which don't seem to have any significance at the time. But when you look back later, you go, oh yeah, God was at work, but I didn't recognise it. You see, God is always present, even when his presence may not seem to be clear. 
That's what the sovereignty of God is like in prom. That's what the sovereignty of God is like in practice. Invisible grace, but grace always at work. Friends, as I said, I'm not going to spoil the story for you. And may I encourage you? Could you do a binge read of Esther? It's actually not that long. But that's the way it's supposed to be read, as a complete story from beginning to end. And as you read it, if you have the eyes to see, you will see God's fingerprints all over the place. God is there protecting his people and his cause, despite the threat of evil. The other day I was listening to a story about Adoniram Judson. Judson was one of the first missionaries to Burma who was being threatened um, with death and was asked by his persecutor what he thought about the future. And this is Judson's response. He said, The future is bright as the promises of God. I love that. The future is as bright as the promises of God. For Esther and Mordecai, and for the people of God through the whole ages, we are called to live by faith in the promises of God. In Romans 8, um, the Apostle Paul brings together two seemingly contrasting ideas. I've got the reading up here on the screen, chapter 8, verse 23. We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they have already? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And then a little bit later on, chapter 8, verse 28, here on the screen. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his promise. So Paul is saying, on the one hand we groan, waiting, hoping for things unseen. But we also know when times are at their worst, we know that things work together for the good. We groan about our situation, we might complain about our situation, but our groaning doesn't stop our knowing. What a great statement of faith in the invisible God, to know that things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Friends, the faith we're called to have, even in the worst of days, is to trust the sovereign hand of God at work in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, at our work, in our church, in every place and time, as God brings people to know him through our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. May God, by his Spirit, give us this faith in him. Our invisible God, made visible through Jesus Christ. Amen.